You're listening to Season 2, Episode 24 of Fail Hard, a by-design podcast that explores the relationship between fear, failure, and creativity, sponsored by Adobe. I'm your host, Will Hull. Here we are, the Season 2 finale of the podcast. As a reminder, each season runs 12 episodes, and as this one winds down, I wanted to take this opportunity to answer some listener mail. You know, Martin, I feel like we could use some sound design for this listener mail segment so we could seem professional maybe next season. Until then, maybe we can just use that crappy AOL You've Got Mail sound effect. You've got mail. There it is. You know, I can feel my laptop catching a virus just by listening to that sound effect. So, you know, you're welcome and let's get to it. Before we get to the questions, though, I did want to thank everyone who actually sent in a question. Much appreciated. If anyone else has a question or suggestion for me or the show, just use your phone's voice memo and email that file to me at hello at willhall.co. We'll be sure to either answer you directly or include it in a future episode on the air. Before we jump into our first question, though, now seems like a good time to remind you, if you haven't yet, go ahead and hit subscribe now so you can stay up to date. We're going to take off a few weeks, but we'll return in a month or so with new episodes. We have some really fun segments and interviews in the works, and I'm already looking forward to season three. You've got mail. Um, I had a question about your single night episode. Uh, With the Frank Lloyd Wright building, it seems like procrastination was part of his process. I'd love to hear your thoughts on procrastination and the creative process. Thanks. That question was sent in from Jessica in New York City. And Jessica is a really great illustrator. We'll link her stuff in the show notes. But along with the audio file, she sent a really thoughtful email where she was talking about procrastination and the specific struggles that come along with working from home. Forces that I'm sure many of us can certainly relate to. So yeah, the P word, procrastination. This seems to be the topic of choice for nearly every dinner I have with creative people. So let's start to unpack what's going on here. First of all, I can't talk about procrastination without at least referencing Stephen Pressfield's seminal book, The War of Art. It's one of my favorite books, and in fact, I've given a copy of it to nearly every student I've had at NYU because I think that he really got to the deepest part of this procrastination problem. Pressfield is an author. His most famous work is probably The Legend of Bagger Vance, but he's written a ton of stuff through the years. Anyway, The spirit of his argument about why we procrastinate is that the closer something is to your soul, the closer a thing is to your higher calling, the more likely it is that we're going to do everything possible to avoid doing it. He calls this capital R resistance. It's what stops us from doing the work we were put here on the earth to do. It's what causes us to procrastinate so much of the time. And when I first heard his ideas, to be honest, I got a little bummed out. Because it seems that we're wired to resist the thing that we're called to do. There's something that seems off about that to me. But as I've sat with his ideas longer, I think it might have something to do with the lizard brain. That's the part of our brain, of course, that says you're going to fail. And it stops us from acting in the first place. Maybe that's why it's so common. So if we actually pursue the thing that's close to us, if we reach out for what we believe is our higher calling... And then if it doesn't work out, that failure, it will cut right to the core of who you are. It's scary. And the lizard brain is, air quotes, protecting us, if you will. 
is protecting us from that pain, but it's also stopping us from being the best version of ourselves. Fear, failure, creativity, these are the themes of this podcast because they're so interrelated. But by demystifying these forces, hopefully we can be encouraged to act, to fight resistance, and to stop procrastinating. Therefore, when we say that creativity requires bravery, that's not some throwaway maxim. That's not just some feel-good bumper sticker. It's fundamentally true on perhaps the most profound level. It's in the deepest part of our wiring. There does, though, seem to be a really great silver lining to all of this. Because sometimes we can use our urge to procrastinate this resistance as a compass to our true calling. It can tell us where we should go. Okay, but why? Well, because resistance only comes from higher callings. So, for example, if you want to sit on your couch and watch Netflix for the next eight hours, resistance, it'll give you a pass. It won't even put up a fight. No, it's the meaningful stuff that we avoid. And that's a powerful idea. I really do think that all of this is at the core of procrastination, especially with creative pursuits. But I'd also like to offer another take. Here's how I tackle procrastination practically. The biggest piece of advice I have for any creative person is to structure your day. And man, is that ever more important now that so many people are working from home? Structure your day. This is so critical for creative people because creativity is associated with trait openness. This is the personality trait that leads us to create in the first place. Creative people are drawn to the new, to new ideas, new projects, new everything. And because of this, our creative energy can easily dissipate into a thousand disconnected thoughts. Imposing structure, programs, and routines, though, is how I believe we can best fight procrastination. Structure, structure, structure. And you know, the other day, I was thinking about how different my Monday is from, let's say, my accountants. And look, I love accountants. Shout out to my accountant, Andy Levine. Great guy, really brilliant guy. And though accountants certainly need to be incredibly smart to do their job, of course, much of their work, though, is predefined. For example, if you want to be an accountant, you know exactly what to study. And when you graduate, you know the exact jobs to look for. And while you're working, if you want to advance your career, you know the exact graduate degrees to pursue. On and on and on. And though the job, of course, can be challenging as an accountant, many of their best practices, frameworks, and approaches, they're completely known. I don't mean that to say that their job is easy. Of course not. I personally find accounting to be really challenging, but it is structured. And because of that, an accountant doesn't need to be but so disciplined. Said differently, their profession seems to impose a structure that makes procrastination hard to do. This is diametrically opposed to the forces around a creative profession. For creative people, there are endless things you could do, but only one thing you can do at any given time. Unlike the accountant whose job is defined and replicated around the world, our job is to define our job. Our work is to define our work. There's a paradox here. To be free, you have to impose order. Artists that seem to, on the outside, be the most free and the most fluid, they're actually the ones that need to be the most disciplined, not the least. They have to define their work every single day. Set routines, follow routines, repeat routines. 
The imposition of order on your day removes the emotion and the need for motivation or inspiration or any of that fluffy stuff that can stop us from sitting down. Sit down and do the work. It makes 90% of our job just showing up. Because creating isn't actually the hard part. It's sitting down to create that's the hard part. Writing isn't hard if you're a writer. It's sitting down to write that's the hard part. And routines can help get your ass in a chair and to actually do the work. As Faulkner famously said, I only write when inspiration strikes, and fortunately it strikes at 9 a.m. every morning. Structure, structure, structure. So yeah, to put a bow on all of that, procrastination isn't just surface laziness. It stands as a buffer between you and your higher calling. The silver lining, though, is that it can give you a north star to your actual purpose. So listen to it closely. And then practically remove the emotion from creative work by creating and imposing a strict structure on your day. In my opinion, especially when starting out, you almost can't be disciplined enough. Go strict. The paradox being that this structure is what enables creativity and ultimately helps us fight and win the battle with procrastination. You've got mail. Two questions. The first is, why do you continue to call this podcast Fail Hard? when you hardly ever talk about failure. But the second, and in some ways more important question, is what is the change you think companies need to make this day and age in order to make failure an acceptable part of their process? That was sent in by Ben Levy, who is coincidentally my old copywriting partner. So good to hear from you, of course. Uh, Ben, by the way, is now a pitch and presentation coach for all these really great agencies. Uh, I'll link his stuff in the show notes as well. Um, It's funny because I've actually received so much flack for the title of the podcast. So I guess let's quickly unpack that. Um, I'm a big fan of The Onion, that fake news network that's been around for, you know, I guess 20 years or something at this point. Um, And years ago on some other podcast, I heard their then creative director talk about how they decided on which headlines to include. And so, like an onion, so too did their headlines have to have multiple layers to it. The spirit of their framework was something like, sure, of course, a headline has to be funny almost immediately. It had to have some curb appeal, some clickbait to it. But it also had to have some deeper truth baked in a meta wink or something like that, that served as an inferred social commentary. Take, for example, the Onion headline, Noam Chomsky finally earns GED. That's so funny on several levels, because sure, the idea that a thought leader as revered in some circles as Noam Chomsky, the idea that he has been struggling to get his GED for decades is absurdly hilarious. But the bigger commentary is perhaps that we as a society just accept our thought leaders and our influencers without questioning their actual credentials. Noam Chomsky finally earns GED is both stupid and smart at the same time. And I was trying to do something similar with the name Fail Hard. Because on the one hand, Fail Hard, it has some curb appeal, if you will. It certainly sounds better than some possible alternatives like... Iterate constantly, you guys, and don't give up the podcast or whatever. Um, But then there's this larger wink, which is that if failure is the goal, then it can't even be failure. Definitionally. So said differently, if your goal is to fail, then failing is actually succeeding, which is, of course, paradoxical. The title itself is a failure. Pretty dumb, I know. But there was a little bit more to it. 
I also wanted to take the piss, as my British friends say, on our collective obsession with air quotes winning. Yeah, goals are important. And sure, there is real value in trying to succeed, obviously. But, and this is a really important but, but we should define our own metrics for success. Screw winning. Winning is what leads people to go into debt to keep up with those around you. Winning is what causes us to work for companies that we might otherwise find reprehensible. Winning is what causes people with an actual creative point of view to instead water it down and pander to whatever the newest 48-hour hashtag trend is happening socially or whatever. All of that mess. All of it's vapid. A true creative life is one of iteration and continual discovery. It doesn't so much care about the temporary whims of everybody else. It operates on its own timeline and is a sacred pursuit. I could go on, but yeah, Fail Hard is both a dumb name, but also has a wink. At least that was the goal. Anyway, that's probably a pretty good segue to the second part of your question, how do we get companies to embrace failure? As we mentioned a few moments ago, failure itself probably shouldn't be the goal. Again, that's paradoxical. Instead, the goal should be to simply iterate constantly. And that's incredibly important for companies to do today, now more than ever. Because, you know, one of the things that COVID did, probably more than anything else, is that COVID accelerated innovation timelines by about a decade. So if you pick a topic and you look at adoption projections from before the pandemic, and you look at them again now, you'll see a telescoping of adoption rates. So, for example, take something obvious like telehealth. Telehealth was projected to hit 25% adoption rate by the year 2030. But today, we're already at that number, all of it thanks to COVID. And these numbers, they don't seem to be going down. Everything is changing, yes, of course, but it's changing at an accelerated rate. Therefore, whereas in previous decades, innovation and iteration was largely seen as a luxury, a nice-to-have, and not a must-have, today, only iterative companies are going to thrive. In fact, historically, it's those companies that were able to see a shifting technological landscape as a competitive advantage instead of something to fear. Those are the ones that have been able to affect the most change in the world. Interestingly, only about 10% of the companies on the Fortune 500 list have been there since the 1960s. So said differently, 90% of organizations that were once Fortune 500 companies are now off the list. The company has struggled for years after it dominated the department store business. For much of the and most of those have actually gone bankrupt or have been, air quotes, saved by a merger. The bottom line is that old adage, change is constant, has just simply never been more true than right now. So to answer your question directly, the market itself is going to force this mindset on the companies, whether they like it or not. Okay, so what do you actually do about that? Well, from a top-down perspective, meaning C-suite and policymakers, I'd encourage them to set up incentives that are in line with a more agile approach to business as opposed to the more traditional and rigid quarterly view. And, you know, I used to consult for one of the largest building companies in the world, and the executives there were actually pretty amazing because instead of just simply trying to maintain their position in the market, you know, operating from a position of fear, instead, they aggressively created several internal kind of autonomous startups with a goal to make their core company, the big thing that people usually protect, they said, make this obsolete. They were trying to self-disrupt internally instead of reacting to some external competitor. 
And since the start of these initiatives, several of their startups have actually been really successful and have made the core product even more resilient. They essentially took a page from the world of software, where companies like Google hire hackers to work for them so that they can try to break their own systems so they can make their product more resilient. I could certainly go on here, but top-down buy-in can obviously go a really long way. And then from a bottom-up perspective, meaning regular employees, one approach I've seen work is to use corporate structures kind of against them. And what I mean by that is you're almost always going to be able to get buy-in by proposing A-B testing models. Everybody likes data and air quotes learning, so we can use that. Use A to do it the traditional way, and then B to test all of these new approaches. And as that data starts to roll in, you can start to build a real business case there. I've seen this work many, many times. Large companies, they often blindly follow data and they react to results kind of dogmatically. You can actually use this flaw to enact real change. Regardless, from C-suite down, everyone ultimately wants the same thing, for the company to thrive and for all the employees to be bountifully employed. To do this, though, we just need to realize that design is both a noun and a verb. It's both the thing, but it's also the process of making the thing. Companies like Apple, who put design, innovation, and iteration at the core of their business, they continue to prove the value of this more iterative approach to business. You've got mail. Hey, Will. I saw your lecture at NYU before the pandemic and was excited when I learned about your podcast. I graduated a year ago and have started an interesting job at a game company, but I love some advice on how to work towards becoming a creative director. Any thoughts would be appreciated. Thank you, Lisa, for the question. Um, Because this podcast has so many non-design listeners, I'm going to keep this one a little bit more brief and also a little bit high level. Uh, Lisa, I'll send you a response email with more detailed thoughts, though. But at a high level, a creative director isn't just a senior designer. Beyond the obvious responsibilities, like, you know, directing the creative, i.e. the concepts, the design, the copywriting, the music, all the stuff, a creative director's primary job is actually to link creative work to strategic insights. Of course, the foundational elements of design are always important. That's never going to change. But as you grow within your company and your career, I would encourage you to learn how to speak about what you do strategically and not just through the lens of pure design. So learn to explain the why behind the what. Learn to speak in briefs instead of simply solutions. Learn to talk about creative work in the context of business outcomes. Even if you end up becoming the most senior and capable person in your company, Good creative directors know when to let others take the lead and also when to stand up and do it yourself. Start to build those muscles now, even when you're operating in a more junior capacity in smaller teams. But let's speak a little bit more practically. And let me ask the question maybe back to you a little bit differently. How do you stand out when you're in a department with 60 other designers? Well, during these next five years, especially while you're just starting out, I'd encourage you to see just how hard you can push yourself. The benefit of this is manifold. First, by really pushing yourself, and I mean really, really trying, you'll get good very quickly. I remember when I was at Pop and Company and we were designing all these really great projects and games for companies like Adult Swim and Nickelodeon. I used to basically live in the studio. I got better both because of the hours I put in, which is sort of obvious, but also because I was able to learn from everyone around me. I absorbed their talent and I was eager to do it. 
I created the perfect mentor a la carte, if you will, because I would emulate the best parts of those around me. I love the way that Chris wrote briefs, and so I copied that. And I loved how Scott illustrated, and so I learned from that and how June animated. I became a rash on all of those around me, and I grew because of it. Secondly, though, by pushing yourself to the limit, you find out just what your limits actually are. You know, we talk about hard work in college and things like this, and I would argue that most college students don't actually work that hard. We're probably at 30, 40, 50% of our capacity. My encouragement to you is, what would it look like if you went all the way? And, you know, I hear the word balance thrown around a lot, and of course, balance is important. And now I have some balance, I'm still working on it, but that's because I worked my ass off for the past 20 years. And those efforts have compounded on themselves over time, and now I can start to talk about balance. But when you're just starting out, I just don't think balance should be your primary concern. It should be about getting good and really fast. So let's sum all of that up. Creative directors are not just senior designers. Instead, they think just as much about strategy as they do design. Accordingly, you should learn how to speak that language now so you'll be ready when the time comes. And during these next five years, push yourself as hard as you possibly can. In the same way a child doubles in size every six months early in their development, young designers evolve radically early on. Lean in, find those limits, and build the grit that comes along with that experience. In five years, working as hard as you can to get better, you'll have the equivalent of 10 years of a regular person's experience, if not more. Just think about how that can compound over the course of your career. In the interest of time, we're going to close the mailbox for now. We'll be sure, though, to have another mailbox in Season 3, and we'll get to some of the other questions that have been sent. Also, feel free to send any new questions our way as well. Hello at willhall.co. Also, I'd like to thank everybody for all of the continued support through these first two seasons. It's been incredibly encouraging, and I continue to learn a ton. If you'd like, go ahead and hit subscribe now so you can be ready when season three comes in a month or so. Fail Hard is sponsored by Adobe. Everything associated with this podcast is enabled by the Creative Cloud, and we couldn't be more grateful for their support. Thank you, Adobe. If you'd like to listen to past episodes of this podcast or watch any episodes of our various television shows, check out our website, bydesign.global. I'm actually going to be in New York next week for the judging day of America by Design Innovations, and I'm really looking forward to seeing everybody there in person and going through all of the great work from that season. So again, to stay up to speed on all things by design, feel free to check out our site. We'll see you soon.